Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're at uh, Zechariah chapter 9, and uh, the remainder of the book of Zechariah is basically comprised of two visions. And each of those visions starts out with the words, the burden of the word of the Lord. And so uh, that's also an oracle. It's just, it's a prophecy that the Lord's given, a vision that the Lord's given Zechariah. And so chapters 9 through 11 is basically one uh, prophecy, uh, one, one vision. Chapters 12 through 14 is the other one. And we're going to be looking at part of the first one uh, this morning. Now, I don't usually pay attention to critics too much, but I've, I've read and understand that there are some critics that believe that this second half of the book of Zechariah that we're going through um, was written by someone other than the prophet Zechariah. And the first, the, the reason why they say it is because this is the first time in, in the book of Zechariah where the words, the burden of the Lord is used. And, and the, the writing style is a little different than the rest of the uh, book of Zechariah. And uh, they've got all these different reasons. Well, my personal take on this it could simply be that uh, these chapters were written later in Zechariah's life. And to me, that kind of makes sense. You know, um, as you get older, um, people change their outlooks on life. Uh, they even change the way they talk as they get older. You know, uh, some older people get either more mellow or I've known people that get more cantankerous as they get older. You know, you get more thankful or you can get more bitter. And, uh, you know, as believers... As you and I age, hopefully we're becoming more and more Christ-like, right? We're becoming more merciful, more compassionate, more humble. And, uh, you know, one of the things is that how you end up being as an older person, you have control over that, to be honest with you. No matter what life throws at you, you know, the Bible teaches that if we harbor unforgiveness, for example, there's a root of bitterness that can spring up in our hearts, and, and we can become an old, bitter person, it's so good to deal with, uh, you know, things people wrong. You just forgive people, forgive others, and and uh, and it's it's it really is, is healing not only to the relationship but it's also good for your own heart. So there's different ways that we can, uh, you know, we have actually control over how we're going to be as we get older. You know, spending more time in God's Word and and just being led by the Holy Spirit, you become more Christ-like, and so. Um, so, you know, for me, I, when I read this and I look at, yeah, he wrote, started writing a little bit different, I go, you know what, I, I'm a different than I was years ago. I, I respond differently. I talk differently. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I look at life a little bit differently than I did before. Well, there's other critics that point to the extreme accuracy here in chapter 9. The prophecies in chapter 9, they look at that and they go, well, it must have been written by someone else because who could have predicted these things so accurately ahead of time? And uh, the critics that, uh, that say that, I think basically what they're doing is they're diminishing, first of all, the inspiration of Scripture. Secondly, they're diminishing who God is and what he can do. You know, I read in Isaiah 46, verse 80, God is saying this, Remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. 
I mean, who would want to worship a God that doesn't know what's going to happen next, you know? To me, it's like, not only does God know what's going on, but God actually controls things that are going on. God is in control. And so, um, whatever the case may be with these critics, I believe, personally, that these last chapters were written by the same Zechariah that wrote the beginning of the book of Zechariah. So let's take a look at it. Chapter 9, verse 1. Says the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes." Why do critics uh, struggle so much with the idea that Zechariah wrote this? Well, because these first nine verses or eight verses um, detail literally and exactly the path that Alexander the Great took in his conquest of that whole land, that whole region in the Middle East in 333 B.C. And remember, this prophecy was recorded by Zechariah at least a century and a half before Alexander the Great's campaign. In fact, it was while Persia was still a dominant world power. That's when Zechariah was prophesying these things. In 333 BC, Alexander the Great defeated Darius and the Persians, his armies, in the Battle of Issus. In the Battle of Issus, or excuse me, after the Battle of Issus, Alexander besieged and quickly captured Damascus. You know, in the book of Daniel, it talks about these four creatures, and one of them is a leopard. And you think of a leopard, of how fast they, they can run and they strike. And, and the leopard really represented uh, Alexander the Great and his armies. And his conquest of land was just its phenomenal. It's, it, it was so rapid. So after the Battle of Issus, Alexander besieged and quickly captured Damascus. After Damascus, Sidon was easily taken. Tyre, the Phoenician city of Tyre, they resisted for seven months, but then they were destroyed as well. Gaza was able to resist only for three months, and then it too was destroyed. All the rest of those cities mentioned in in this prophecy, they were all conquered by Alexander the Great. Some of them, you know, they just basically, when they saw what happened to other cities like Tyre, they just surrendered. Others resisted, and they were destroyed as an example. And uh, Tyre is one of the cities that that resisted, but finally they were completely destroyed. And and verse 3 there of chapter 9, it specifically mentions Tyre and her wealth and her pride. Now, to understand a little bit about that, the city of Tyre, there was an ancient city, and uh, it was on land, which would be right now in in Lebanon, in in, uh, the present-day Lebanon. And uh, that city, that first city of Tyre was destroyed 
And uh, when it was destroyed, the Phoenicians, they rebuilt the city, but they moved it offshore. There was an island just offshore, about a half mile off, offshore. And they, they went ahead, and, and the Sidonians, uh, or the, excuse me, the Phoenicians, they were a seafaring people. They did a lot of trade. They were very wealthy because of all their trade that they did. And uh, so it was a natural thing for them to just set up their city on an island. And uh, they, so they did that. Um, so they were a half mile offshore. So any, any armies without a navy, basically, they couldn't get to them. But even if they had a navy, the, the, uh, the people of Tyre had built these massive walls. In fact, they were double walls. They were 150 feet high. And in between those double walls, they filled them with 25 feet of dirt. So, I mean, they were very, very, uh, you know, strong and fortified. Um, between having these massive walls and having that ocean, the, the water surrounding them, uh, they basically felt they were impregnable, that they couldn't be attacked. And, uh, you know, they, someone had tried to. They had resisted a 13-year siege by the Babylonians. And uh, so they had this national pride. Uh, they were um, very wealthy, and uh, it gave them basically the idea that they would never fall. Well... Alexander's army. So, so Nebuchadnezzar actually destroyed the old city of Tyre. And that's when they built and they moved off and they, they, they built up this island, basically, into the, the new city of Tyre. And Alexander's army, uh, you know, they, they were there on shore looking out there. Alexander came up with a great idea. And uh, he basically had his engineers constructed. And they took the rubble from the old city of Tyre that was just laying there on the land. And they built a half-mile-long causeway out to the island and uh, in seven short months, uh, they captured and destroyed Tyre, and they leveled it by fire, basically. And uh, Alexander's army literally fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy, because Ezekiel prophesied about the old city of Tyre uh, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy. Let me read this to you. It's Ezekiel 26, verse 12. It says, They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones and your timber and your soil in the midst of the water. I will put an end to the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harp shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets, and you shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. And that's exactly what happened. The old city of Tyre was never rebuilt. It was scraped flat, and it literally became a place where fishermen spread their, out their nets to dry. And if you look at a satellite image of that area, that causeway, now they've built sand, dirt around it, so now it's like this great big thing. But basically that causeway is still there. See, it's a testimony to the truth of God's word, to the truth of prophecy. You know, sometimes we, we look at things and we start forgetting, but, you know, you can go there and you can see God's word is true. Um, it's a testimony to the truth of prophecy, and it's also a testimony to the folly of human pride. Because they thought that no one would ever get them, and uh, they were wrong. Well, once Tyre was destroyed, the city of the Philistines, um, described next, they saw that destruction of Tyre, and they realized, oh, the jig's up, man. He's coming after us now. Verse 5, it says, Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful, and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. 
So he, then right after that, he was on his way to uh, the land of the Philistines. Verse 6, it says, A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. Now there's a couple ways that that could be interpreted. It could refer either to someone of legitimate, uh, illegitimate birth. And uh, Alexander's mother apparently claimed that he was uh, fathered by the gods. So, you know, he was technically, I guess, considered uh, illegitimate in that sense because um, his father's name was Philip. Uh, so it could have been referring to Alexander the Great himself, or it could refer to the destruction of Ad- Ashdod that it was so complete that uh, only foreigners and aliens would pass through the land. In other words, there'd be no more citizen inhabitants of the Philistines there in that city. So whatever the case is, it just it was you know destroyed. Verse 7, But he who remains, even he shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. Now the Jebusites, they were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem, and uh, they were not totally destroyed by the children of Israel. They ended up becoming servants for the children of Israel, and eventually they just kind of blended in with the Hebrews. And what this prophecy is saying is the same thing would happen to the Philistine inhabitants of Ekron. They would just kind of get assimilated, basically, into the, into, uh, the Jews, with the Jews there. Verse 8, though, is very interesting. It says, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. And the most fascinating thing about Alexander's conquest of that region there, well, you know, he totally wiped out all these cities, these cities surrounding Jerusalem and surrounding Judea, but he literally left Jerusalem and those other cities around in Judea alone through his conquest. He literally left them alone. And uh, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus He has an explanation for it. I'm going to just kind of summarize it here, basically. It says, When Alexander was besieging Tyre, he sent a letter to the high priest Jadua, who lived in Jerusalem, requesting him to send Alexander assistance and supplies for the troops. Well, Jadua declined to help because he had sworn allegiance to Darius the Persian. This infuriated Alexander, who, after he conquered Tyre, headed for Jerusalem to destroy it. When Jadua heard that Alexander and his army was on their way to Jerusalem, he ordered the Jews to make sacrifices to God and ask for deliverance. That night, after the sacrifice, God spoke to Jadua in his sleep, telling him to take courage. He was to adorn the city with wreaths and then open the gates and go out and meet the invaders. The people were to be dressed in white garments and the priests in the robes prescribed by law. Now this is in Josephus' words what happened next. When Alexander, while still far off, saw the multitude in white garments, the priests at their head clothed in linen, and the high priest in a robe of hyacinth blue and gold, wearing on his head the mitre with the golden plate on it, which was inscribed the name of God, he approached alone and prostrated himself before the name and first greeted the high priest." So if you can imagine, there's this, this conqueror. I mean, he's been taking city after city and just, you know, he's, he's spectacular. And, and here he comes and, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they basically come out. They've got their white robes, the linen clothes on. The high priests are dressed in their high priestly garments. And uh, Alexander basically gets down and he bows in front of this high priest. And you can imagine his generals and his soldiers are like, what in the world's going on? And so this is what uh, 
uh, Josephus tells us, Alexander's men were astonished at this. And Parmen, Parmenian, uh, or Parm, whatever, the guy's name, we'll just call him Polly. Uh, Polly, his second in command, asked why he bowed down to the Jewish high priest. Alexander replied, it was not before him that I prostrated myself, but the God of whom he has the honor to be high priest. For it was, uh, for it was he whom I saw in my sleep, dressed as he was, uh, excuse me, for it was he whom I saw in my sleep, dressed as he is now, when I was at Dior in Macedonia. As I was considering with myself how I might become master of Asia, he urged me not to hesitate, but to cross over confidently. For he himself would lead my army and give over to me the empire of the Persians. Since therefore I have beheld no one else in such robes, and on seeing him I am, I am reminded of the vision and the exhortation, I believe I have made this expedition under divine guidance, and that I shall defeat Darius and destroy the power of the Persians." Kind of a spectacular thing. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I read some of Josephus' stuff, I go, I don't know. I mean, he sounds like he exaggerates, and he might. Um, Whether or not Josephus' account is factual or not, because it's not inspired, the words of Josephus, um, but whether or not they're factual, the fact does remain that Alexander the Great left Jerusalem alone, and he passed by it several times, and as well as the other uh, cities alone, while he was conquering and destroying all the other nations surrounding Israel. So there had to have been some divine intervention. God had to be, had his hand in that. Um, So Alexander basically was God's instrument of judgment against the enemies of his people. All those people that had oppressed, had had tormented, had had, uh, done all these things to the Israelites, God was taking care of them now, handling them, judging them. And Alexander was God's instrument of judgment. But God would only allow Alexander to do uh, only as much as he allowed and no more. And I don't know about you, but that's a comfort when I read things like that. You know, things happen to us in our lives. But God, they only, God allows things, and, but he isn't, you know, you look at the life of, of, of uh, Job, for example, you know, the devil wanted to, basically wanted to kill Job. And, and God says, well, you can take away his family, you can take away his wealth, you can, you can even take away his health, but don't take his life. You know, don't touch him, don't lay a hand on him. And, uh, and so God's in control. And so, you know, look at the things that are going on around in our world around us today and the things that happen that are totally out of our control. I just want you to know that God's in control. So, you know, we can relax. But notice, however, the end of verse 8. It says, no more shall an an oppressor pass through them. Now we know eventually the Romans would pass through Jerusalem and it would be destroyed in 70 AD. So this is another case in prophecy, and we've seen this as we've gone through so many of these uh, books of prophecy. This is another case where this prophecy has a partial fulfillment in Alexander the Great, but it's going to have a complete fulfillment when the Antichrist marches on Jerusalem. And again, God once more is going to miraculously spare them. So you take this this prophecy here, you contrast uh, Alexander the Great, as spectacular as he was, uh, with Israel's true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. What a difference between kings. 
this king who is just and has salvation. In fact, the Bible tells us there is salvation found in no one else but Jesus Christ. This king who is just and has salvation, he'd be lowly, which is another word for another way of saying he'd be humble. He'd be entering into Jerusalem not on a mighty war horse with all these soldiers behind him, but he'd be entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. Very humble, very lowly. This was literally fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion. We celebrated his Palm Sunday. He was sitting on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's recorded in all four Gospels. It continues here in verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Luke, in his gospel account, records that when Jesus entered Jerusalem in fulfillment of this prophecy, that Jesus, as he was coming in, he wept over the city in Luke 19, 40, 41, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come when you, and, uh, when you, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, you know, they, the disciples laid clo- their cloaks down and, and they, they sat Jesus on, on the cloaks on the donkey and, and others were cutting down palm branches and they were making a, a path, basically, for the king to enter Jerusalem and, and they were waving their palm branches and they were shouting out, Hosanna, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But a short week later, they were crying out something else, man, crucify him. They missed the visitation of their king and the things that make for peace. So when we read verse 9, and then we get to verse 10, and it talks about the fact that, that uh, uh, it says, uh, he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from, river, from the river to the ends of the earth. We look and I go, wait a minute, that hasn't happened. Well, that's true. In between... Verse 9 and verse 10, there's a gap. And that gap's lasted about 2,000, roughly about 2,000 years. It's the gap, the gap is known as the church age. It's, we're living right in between verse 9 and verse 10. And I believe we're very, very close to verse 10 happening and being fulfilled. Um, that's when Jesus comes at the end of this age and the start of the kingdom age. And that's when he's going to speak peace not only to Jerusalem, but to all the nations. And at that point, as he rules from Jerusalem, he'll have dominion over all the earth. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when we're, when we're looking at these prophecies, it's like, well, why do the prophets speak about Christ's first coming and the second coming? They, they kind of blended together. And the only thing I can think of is these guys were men. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were inspired. But, and they saw these visions 
but they didn't necessarily understand. In fact, a lot of the Bible says that they, they, they were trying to figure out when is all these things going to take place, and they were trying to understand it. And it's almost like, you know, you, they were standing on a mountain peak, and they were looking across, and they see a couple more mountain peaks. And so they're describing the mountain peaks to us, but they, they don't see the valley in between. They don't know what's in between. That's the only way I can look at this, that, they, that these prophecies uh, seem to combine Christ's first and second coming. Notice in verse 10, the chariot, the horse, and the battle bow. Of course, those are all weapons uh, of warfare. And, uh, you know, the thing is, Israel and the Middle East are never going to experience peace until Jesus comes and ushers in peace during the kingdom age. So I got some free advice for you because, you know, the the elections are coming pretty soon. And uh, we're going to be given all kinds of promises from these candidates, right? They're going to they're promise us, you know, all kinds of stuff. And one of the things that they typically try to promise and they try to do in their administration is, I'm going to bring peace to the Middle East. And I tell you, uh, it's a pipe dream. It's, it's never going to happen. So free advice for you. If someone tells you, you know, you're thinking, well, who am I going to vote for? And they're like, well, we're bringing peace to the Middle East. And don't believe them because it ain't going to happen until Jesus comes and reigns himself personally. By the way, and this is uh, free, no charge, but um, speaking of elections, maybe you caught this. I just, I just caught a glimpse of it last night, but uh, there was a little article in the news from James Dobson, and uh, evidently, according to James Dobson, he knows someone who just recently led Donald Trump to the Lord. And uh, he says, I'm not, uh, he, he won't reveal who that person is, but he says, I know the person. And he says, pray for Donald Trump. Now, of course, I'm not endorsing him from the pulpit, but uh, it's interesting, things that are happening. And so, you know, this is a time more like any other time that we just need to be in prayer. Uh, this is such an interesting election cycle. But again, God's in control. So, you know, we can get all up in arms about who the candidates are and, and what's going to happen if each, either one of them's in. And, and we can get so worked up, but you know what? God's in control. And sometimes I look at these things that are happening and, and I go, you know, I'm not really thrilled with a lot of the stuff that's going on. But one thing that does encourage me is I, I go, you know, Jesus Christ is coming back soon. I mean, the world stage is being set for a one-world government. The world stage is being set for a one-world currency. And uh, that just tells me, man, look up, because our redemption is drawing near. So I hope you're encouraged by that. Well, verse 11, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And I think you and I are those prisoners whom Jesus set free from the waterless pit by the blood of the new covenant ushered in by his death. Verse 12, Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as, with, as if with wine. They shall be filled with the blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. 
Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. Looking at verse 13, it talks about the sons of Zion going against the sons or battling against the sons of Greece, and there's only one time in history that this has occurred, and that was during the Maccabean War. Verses 12 through 17 seems to be describing that time. And again, remember, this was written about 150 years before Greece even became a military power. We know from history now, after Alexander the Great died at the age of 33, the entire Greek empire was split up into three parts. Greece itself was ruled by different rulers. Egypt was ruled by guys known as the Ptolemies. And then the eastern lands, including Judah, were ruled by the Seleucids. And the Seleucids were very harsh rulers. And there was one in particular, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was the worst. He tried to eliminate Jewish religion. He stopped the daily sacrifices. He destroyed copies of the scriptures. He forbade the Jews to circumcise their infants. He erected pagan altars. And then the last straw, basically, for the Jewish people was he desecrated the temple. He erected a pagan altar to Zeus, and he sacrificed a, a pig on the altar there, just, you know, to totally trying to wipe out the Jews, their culture, and their religion. And there was a priest by the name of Matthias Maccabeus. And his five sons, they led a guerrilla war against the Greeks who were under Antiochus. And eventually Matthias died, but his, one of his sons named Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, they finally drove out the Seleucids um, and they accomplished basically a century of independence that lasted up until the coming of the Roman ruler Pompey in 63 B.C. Um, and so it's, it's amazing, these prophecies, how accurate they were. So from verse 14 on, though, through the rest of the chapter, not only is this, I believe, describing this time of the Maccabean Revolt, but it's also, I think, a prophetic jump again up to another time known as the time of Jacob's trouble. And that's... And also, we know it as the the Great Tribulation. And you know, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's basically a picture of the coming Antichrist. In fact, some people in their eschatology, they look at the the, uh, the, uh, prophecies in Daniel regarding this this abomination that causes desolation. They go, well, look, that was Antiochus Epiphanes. So all that stuff's already happened. And uh, yeah, it was describing him because he was historical. It did happen. But it's also, he's also a forerunner, a picture of the world, uh, the coming ruler of the world, the Antichrist. And when he's going to make a covenant with Israel, we know that from the book of Revelation. And in the middle of that covenant, in the middle of three and a half years, then he's going to step foot in the temple. By the way, that means there's going to be another temple built. And then he's going to declare that he's God and that everyone's to worship him. And that up until that point, you know, it's interesting, the Jews up until that point, some of them... There, some of them believe that uh, the temple has to be built and then Messiah is going to come. Others say, well, when Messiah comes, he's going to build the temple. So if you think about prophecy, the Bible says that the Antichrist, he was going to make this covenant with Israel and there's going to be a third temple. If he's the one that arranges for Israel to be able to have a temple, they're going to think he's the Messiah. 
That's that strong delusion that's going to occur in the last days. And then when all of a sudden he steps in there and does basically what Antiochus Epiphanes does, they're going to realize, man, how wrong were we? You know, put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish people. They've gone through the Babylonian uh, captivity. Uh, they've, they've seen all these different things, and now all of a sudden this Antiochus Epiphanes, he starts doing this persecution and, and all these things. And can you imagine the Jewish people going, oy vey, not again. Because that's exactly, you know, f- through every generation, Jewish people have been the object of hatred, of anti-Semitism, of, of persecution. In fact, even now, uh, there's record numbers of Jewish people that are leaving France because of all the persecution that's occurring in France. And it seems like every generation, the Jewish people are a target for, um, for persecution. And, you know, looking back at verse 11, it talks about that, that waterless pit. You know, in those days, if you had a cistern or a well and it was dry, that was a perfect place to put prisoners. We know from the Bible that Joseph, remember his brother sold him into slavery? They threw him into one of those pits couldn't get out. He was basically isolated by himself till they were able to sell him to these Midianite traders. We know that Jeremiah, he was hated because of his prophecies, and they threw him in a pit, in a dry, in a dry pit. It's basically a place of exile. You're being cut off from access. I mean, you know, you're there. There's no way you're going to get out, and, and nobody's going to come to rescue you. Well, you contrast that pit in verse 11 with the stronghold here in verse 12. Instead of being cut off from deliverance in a pit, the Lord is telling his people to return to the stronghold where the enemy is going to be cut off from harming them. That's what a stronghold is. You go in there and you're protected from the enemy attacking you. In these times of uncertainty, fear of what the future holds... You know, I look, at, I look at what's going on around this nation and around the world, and, and you know, we look at what's happening even on a personal level. It's like, what's, ha- what's going to happen to me? You know, what's going to happen with the economy and all these things? And we, we get so, uh, there's so much uncertainty. I want to encourage you, the Lord God is your stronghold today. The Bible says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though... The earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. He's a very present trel, uh, refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And notice the Bible also mentions that they are prisoners of hope. What's a prisoners of hope? You know, the Jews... In Zechariah's time, and of course, 150 years later, they would face intense trials and afflictions. But here God is telling them to maintain hope in the covenant-keeping God because God keeps his promises. And uh, it says, you know, even today I declare that I'll restore it double to you. You know, as believers, we go through afflictions. We're not immune from it. This tragedy that happened this, this weekend, you know, we're, we're not immune from these afflictions. But, you know, we're not like unbelievers who don't have hope. You and I, we have hope. We're prisoners. We're, we're going through tr- afflictions, but we're prisoners of hope because we have a God who's faithful with his, to his promises. And so the Lord says, even today I will declare that I will restore double to you. 
This is God's promise to his people. You know, Zechariah is not trying to encourage them, trying to, you know, pump them up or say, hey, you know, hang in there. This is God saying to them, I'm going to restore double to you. I promise. You look at Job. I mean, he lost everything basically but his life, and he kept trusting God. There's a verse in, in Job that I, don't, I didn't write down the, where it's at, but it, it always sticks with me. It's like he says, even though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. Even though the Lord slay me, I'm going to trust him. That's, a, that's, that's, that's faith. That's relying on God's promise. And in the end of Job's trials and his afflictions, the Lord did restore to him double of everything. Isaiah 61.7 says, Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Instead of your shame, you're going to have double honor. You know, our capacity for joy... The capacity for, for having joy, it, it, you know, following afflictions, it's greater than if we didn't go through those afflictions. You know, I, yesterday, well, actually a couple of days, um, Teresa and I, we went up to the North Shore, and uh, we were on our way back down here, and, and we came through Beaver Bay, and there's an agate shop in there, and Teresa loves agates, I do too, but she loves them even more than I do, and she, she wanted to go and look at this, this rock shop, and I said, okay, we had just driven past, the, there's a waterfall, a little stream there and some falls. And I said, I'm going to go take some pictures. She suggested, why don't you go take pictures? And that'll give me more time to look in the agate shop. I'm like, oh, that works out. So I went down to this, uh, to this thing. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's right off the highway. And I got there, and I'm like, wow, you really got to go down some steep stuff. So I, you know, I hopped down there, and I got to the bottom and uh, took a couple pictures, and I put them on Facebook. And <laughs> I didn't do any selfies that time. And then anyways, I came back up. And uh, as I was coming up, I thought, you know, exactly a year ago, I would not have been able to do that. The year ago, man, my back was so messed up. We went, I, I, it's a long story, but I really, really hurt my back. And, and that entire summer, I was very limited to what I could do. And I thought to myself, you know, I said, if, if I was still in that affliction, there's no way I would have been able to do this. And I just thought, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I, I, I can do things. I, I, I'm, I'm mobile. You know, I can move around and stuff. Had I not gone through that difficulty, that, that, that affliction in my back last year, I would have not even gave it a thought. I would have just went down there and went back up, and that's it. And okay, now I'm going to go to the rock shop and, and uh, you know, hang out with my wife. But you see, when we go through those afflictions, those hard things, when we come out of it, it gives you a greater, a greater joy. And, and I look at, you know, believers. You know, we, we know that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. I look all around us. I think the signs are just evident. And I look at some believers, and I think, I don't think that they're that excited why? Well, because they got things going good right now. Man, I got a good job. I got a good house. I got, I got fun things that I do. You know, I mean, life is good right now. I, I don't want to give this up. But if you're going through a terrible situation, if your life is just, it's just everything's shattered around you or there's just so uncertainty and, you know, it's just misery, man, when, when Jesus Christ returns, your capacity, your joy is going to be just that much more magnified. And I don't know why God allows us to go through the things he does. I, I, I wish I could give the Thompsons an answer. I can't. I don't know why God does those things. But I do know that on the other side of that, there's a, there's a deeper joy. It's a greater capacity. 
that if you had not gone through those things, excuse me. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, too, so I get a little emotional when I'm tired. (laughs) All right, verse 16. It says, The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. You know, God did use the Maccabees to save his people from Antiochus Epiphanes, and they obviously were filled with joy that God delivered them. You know, um, there's one celebration that they do with the, with the, the, uh, the, uh, um, the land, the, I forgot what they call that thing, the, say it again? Yes, I didn't hear you though, but I know what you, <laughs> you guys heard them. Anyways, the candelabra, no, not candelabra, <laughs> menorah, thank you. <laughs> Anyways, you know, they celebrate the lighting, that the, the fact that it, the, the menorah didn't go out during the time when they didn't have any oil for the, for the thing. Anyways, their, their joy of, of God delivering the Maccabees was great. They were filled with joy. But I look at this passage, and I don't think this is just speaking of the Maccabean, uh, the, the, the war of the Maccabees and, and driving out the Seleucids. I think this also is looking forward to the time of Jacob's trouble, the Great Tribulation. Because during that time, those, now for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to be raptured before that occurs. I believe that firmly. But Israel's going to go through a time known as uh, Jacob's trouble. And in there, people that come to faith in Christ there it's basically going to result in beheading. Now, years ago, when I read those things, I thought, well, that's kind of weird. You know, it seems kind of fantastic. But look at it today. People are being beheaded because of their faith in Christ today. So it's, anyways, people during the tribulation, they accept Christ. They will be beheaded for as a result of it. And those tribulation saints who are martyred during that time, they're going to be like the jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his land. You know, I look at all these Jewish people and Christians and and saints and missionaries who have lost their lives as a result of their faith in Christ Jesus. Throughout history, men and women have been martyred for righteousness' sake. And the writer of Hebrews describes them in verse 35 of chapter 11. He says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. And listen to this, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. The Lord was, or excuse me, the world was not worthy of them, but they were precious in the Lord's sight. They're like jewels on a crown. Verse 16, I think, could also be referring to the tribulation saints. Revelation 24, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, those saints that, that, and, and those Jewish people that, that were martyred, man, they're jewels in the crown. You know, again, 
I look at the things that are going on around us, and I, and I look at these poor believers that have been just, I mean, you know, if you live anywhere where ISIS is, I mean, the, 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 the tragedy that's been occurring over there, and so many people have lost their lives for their faith. And I, and I think, you know, each one of them, they're just so precious to the Lord. And so, you know, when you and I go through trials and we go through afflictions, I want you to just, I, I, if I can get anything out of, out of this across to you, it's that the Lord God's our stronghold. You can trust him. You can, you, can, you know, sometimes we don't have answers for what happened. I, 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 can't, I can't explain why some of the things happen. And when those things happen, I, I usually go, I don't, know what, I don't know what to do. But what I do know is that Jesus loves me and that Jesus loves you. And I do know that he has a plan and a purpose, even in the pain. And, and God can take a tragedy and he can turn around for his glory. And that, that's the God that you and I serve this morning. Why don't you stand up and let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, I thank you this morning that, Lord, you are a God that not only sees the future, but, Lord, you, it's, the future is in your hands. Lord, not only the future of, of nations and countries and cities, but, Lord, each one of our lives is in your hands this morning. And Father, I know that some of us are going through, through terrible, difficult times, Lord God, right now. Lord, I just pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would remember that you're in control, that you love us, Lord, that you've not forsaken us. And Lord, I pray that you could take something that the enemy means for harm, Lord, and you could turn it for your glory. Lord, we just, we just thank you that we can put our trust in you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray that you might be our stronghold, Lord, that we would take advantage of that, that we would run to you, our high tower, Lord, that we would find safety and shelter in you and not in anything else but just you, Lord, because nothing else is certain, but Lord, you are. And so we thank you for that reminder this morning. And Lord God, I just pray for each and every person here this morning. Lord, I don't know if everybody has a relationship with you this morning, but Lord, I pray that even this morning, Lord, that if there is somebody here that that doesn't have a personal relationship with you, Lord God, that they would come to you in prayer this morning. Lord, that they would confess that they're a sinner and acknowledge that they are in need of a Savior, and Lord, that they would turn to you. And Lord, your word says that if we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of our all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, I just thank you that that we can put our trust in you, Lord God. And so this morning, I just pray for uh, each and everybody's relationship with you this morning. Lord, we thank you for dying on the cross for us. We thank you that even though today we might be going through difficult times, Lord, maybe we're prisoners of an affliction or things that are going on, Lord, but we're prisoners of hope. And I thank you that you're the one who's given us that hope, Lord, a living hope. And so, Lord, I pray your blessing on your, on your people this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.